Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 60 of Real Blend, a podcast that's about to ruin Jake and Gabe's day by giving away every single spoiler to Jordan Peele's us. I will, Strap I will in, literally guys. quit. I will literally, yeah. That is not me doing my bit. I will quit yeah. this freaking podcast right now. Or I'll well, spoil Shazam. I'll do it. No, I saw it. That's okay. Doesn't matter. And for anybody who's questioning turning us off, we are not going to be doing that for real. That is a joke. That well, will not except be for the happening. twist. I'll tell you the twist if right now. If you do it, I will get out. Uh, you see? know what? Screw you guys. Kevin does these dumbass puns for 59 <laughs> no, episodes. Great. And I right. get one. Right. I get one. <laughs> I was, no, I was just getting ready to compliment you. I, was, I actually was just getting ready to say... After all the times you've made fun of my bad puns, you just <laughs> delivered one and knocked that out the pork. That was a great pun. Yeah. That was how did it feel? Pun. Tell me how it felt to say that. It felt great. How did it? it how did it Jordan peel? It felt yeah. cheap and self-serving. <laughs> oh, Jake, stop man. trying to play the pun game with us, and let's oh just get on with God. the show. Wow. <laughs> This is Gabe, you have deep. one job to do, and it's move this show along. We've already derailed. We're 18 seconds in. My name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing director. We haven't even gotten to the names yet. Managing director here at Cinema Blend. Joining me is the guy who saw us, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kevin. I did. And no spoilers will be coming out of my mouth at all in regards to that film. But uh, I I would like to... weird uh, way to phrase that. Well, no, I mean, no spoilers. That's what I'm saying. Like, nothing will be said out of my mouth about this film. Ooh, that's um, a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy who, who didn't see us yet, Jake Hamilton in Chicago. Fox what a crappy introduction. Chicago. You know, I've hey, seen what? several films. I've seen dozens of films. <laughs> be yes, a glass half full kind of guy, Sean. And we'll get to one of them, Shazam, in a little bit. But um, uh, before we get to reviews, and speaking of Chicago, Jake's hometown... Uh, this is a reminder that we are headed to Chicago on April 13th, and we're planning to get together with as many of the Real Blend fans as are willing to come by and hang out. We are going to have more details on where we're going, uh, the more specific when and and venue and all that. Gabe's still working a lot of this stuff behind the scenes. Uh, but again, it's it's Saturday, April 13th. It's tied to Star Wars Celebration, although we're just we're all in town for that. Uh, we need people, you know, to RSVP just to give us an idea. If you plan on coming, uh, we want to get a sense of how many people we need to actually make room for. So we have a, a link. It's it's totally free. Uh, this is just a fun event that you guys can come on by and and hang out with us. But if you want to RSVP for the Chicago uh, hangout on April 13th, the website to go to is uh, bit.ly slash real blend chicago real blend chicago i botched that um we will it's on our twitter account too how do you spell lee is it ly yes b-i-t dot l-y slash backslash real blend chicago that is b-i-t dot l-y backslash real blend chicago all lowercase gabe says are we allowed to break the news about what, what we're doing while we're there I guess. Sure. Okay, what are we so doing? While we're I don't doing? know if people know this, but Jake's actually going to be hosting um, auditions in his apartment or condo. Right. Um, and the best. <laughs> where where person, are you going with this? The best <laughs> best person to recreate the solo name scene. Um, oh, nice. Will, will become the fourth chair on our show for an episode. So Jake will give out his address, and we'll be doing all of that at Jake's apartment. And Jake will be the uh, end all be all of the uh, best one that that happens. I can't wait for question? you guys to get to Chicago, and then I just don't talk to you at all. I don't answer I any of your texts. I don't answer about any of these your auditions calls. that Jake oh, is holding. If yeah. Ron Howard shows up, do oh. we automatically dismiss him because it's, yeah. he, he did it poorly? 
Well, I think Ron Howard, may, maybe he'll, yeah, maybe he'll like figure out how he should have done it in his film. Should Lord That's, and Miller come and I, and we can see yes. their version of it? I want to like see their see version. This is a very yeah. hostile episode of Real Blend. You guys, <laughs> 60 episodes, you guys have become some real assholes. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about something that wasn't hostile. And this was the uh, the Austin meetup that, that I held uh, briefly. And I want to just thank the folks who came out to the Austin meetup. It was off the cuff. It was totally casual, but we had... Zachary and Tyler Griffin, who interacted with us on Twitter often. And of course, the two queens, the unofficial fourth and fifth chair of the podcast, uh, Carrie and Kalina, came by the Austin meetup. What took place during South by. So I want to thank all of you guys for going out of your way, making plans to hang out uh, in Austin. We had merch. If you go to the Real Blend Twitter feed, you can see photographs of them holding uh, our new notepads with our logo on it, and uh, and we're going to bring some of those to Chicago as well as additional things I'm going to make Gabe make. So, and I also um, believe yeah. that uh, Kalina and Carrie uh, both yeah. schooled you on Kill Bill being one film. I believe that's correct, and even though you're still them. in denial about right. this. Dude, this they meetup me is going to be rough for you, dude. They gave me a crazy 88 uh, Funko Pop. Great. And I want to just say that because it didn't say Kill Bill Volume 1 on it, <gasps> that they think that that proves that it's one film. It just says Kill Bill on it. What's interesting to me is that we still have this debate for months now, yet Quentin yes. Tarantino himself considers right. it one movie. So I don't understand how this is even a question. Okay, Sean, I have a legit question, honestly, and I, I'm not asking this to, to be a, a smartass or anything. If we were to get Quentin Tarantino on Real yes. Blend, yes. would you tell him that you think Kill Bill is two films, and therefore, if he comes back and says, no, it's one, would you stand your ground and say, <laughs> no, you're wrong? That is a great question. I'd love to see that. That is a great question. I don't think that I would state it to him. What I would probably phrase it as, don't you understand why I view it as <laughs> two movies? You have an end credits to one movie and an opening credit to another. Well, this is what the, what this comes down to, Sean, is what he's going to say to you is this is not this is not fact versus pulp fiction. This is oh, God. a fact that it <laughs> is I mean, not, not one, to open this up one again, movie. But like, it was split into two based on a decision made by Harvey Weinstein. And hasn't he made some bad decisions lately? <laughs> yeah. Yes, he has. Without yeah. Don't shake your right. head at me, Gabe. Fair enough. All right. Well, we'll get to. I, let's get Quentin. On. I, I I would love to get Quentin on this for. Well, we've we've uh, heard some big names that are being floated around for being on Real Blend. We can't say who it is, but let's say we might have an exciting year in store for our listeners. We very well may. Okay. So now for some reviews from listeners, which we love. So uh, wait, again, Sean. Yes, sir. We have a guest on our show today. We got to tease that. Oh, right. We do. Of course. Um, there's a movie, Captive State, and it's been playing in um, limited release, and it's going to go wide this Friday, March 15th. Um, and the director, Rupert Wyatt, got on the phone with us, and we did an interview with him, which we will have later on in this show. And we didn't get very spoilery with it, so I think this is an interview you can listen to uh, between the three of us and Rupert Wyatt to get you excited for Captive State. Obviously, he directed uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This is an alien uh, invasion film, but he takes it from a different perspective of how the uh, people would sort of rebel against the alien leaders that are now sort of running our country. And it was a great conversation. We had a really good discussion with him. So we will have Sean, that later on in the show. Yes. Sean, I, 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 the only thing I was upset about is I didn't get to ask him a question that I, was, I, I read about. Have you heard about Rupert Wyatt's favorite Kevin Costner film? Oh my God. We're like eight minutes into this episode. Wait, is it uh, Tombstone? No, it's Rupert Wyatt Earp. 
if you want to send a review to the show and listen, it could be a negative review. I would understand at this point. Like I'm not even going to. Come on. That was awesome. That was a great one. Come on. Stunned into silence. You could go to our iTunes page. Uh, leave a review. You can email us one at um, realblend at cinemablend.com, which I believe is where we got this new one from TJ Winfield. Uh, TJ, we really want to thank you for the kind words. We have shortened your uh, review a tad here uh, just for time, but uh, these emails, obviously, and these reviews are awesome. TJ says, I can't remember exactly how I discovered Real Blend, most likely finding Kevin somewhere on social media via 106.7, the fan personalities. Uh, But man, I'm really fortunate that I did. This podcast is thoroughly entertaining and something that I look forward to every week. DC area rush hour traffic is made much easier when listening to the three of these Kaiser Brohelms talk movies. I don't know Kaiser Brohelms. What is that? Is that that like a sports junkies thing? No? I don't know. Maybe? Um, From Kevin's ludicrous puns, hyperbole and retelling of stories to Jake's cool straight shooter vibe whose movie opinions I align with the most to Sean's fatherly perspective again about me being cool and a straight shooter just interrupt mine you just interrupt mine that's cool well that's that's what it's what you do to the father of the group is that what straight shooters do is that how straight shooters do the reviews that's what straight shooters do (laughs) they make sure I go back and read the thing about them hold on let me back up just a tad uh to Jake's cool straight shooter vibe whose movie opinions I align with the most. You even missed, you tripped over your own second half of your compliment. Oh, I knew it was To get coming. to your, yeah. To Sean's fatherly old man perspective. <laughs> I'm translating that. Uh, and I'll also say, and, and then he says, and awesome hosting talents that keep the show interesting. Thank you. It is a joy to feel part of, of such a conversation each week. Seriously, though, the amount of times I've yelled curse words in response to Kevin's maddening puns would fill up an abhorrent I amount of swear jars at my parents' house. That's the best <laughs> comment ever. Because I now I just picture people driving around in traffic <laughs> enraged by Kevin's horrible puns. I'm very excited about the Wyatt Earp reaction. The Rupert Wyatt Earp. <laughs> now, I was holding on to that one. I, I had that in, my, in the back of my mind for a couple of I uh, realized, actually, to your point, that I actually have to be careful because I sort of swore kind of what I thought was sort of to myself a couple of episodes back uh, whenever you released one of your your unforgiving puns. <laughs> and I guess it picked up in the audio and someone tweeted yeah. at me. He's like, dude, I totally heard when you said this string of swear words. And I did not mean for that to get picked yeah. up in the audio I whatsoever. Heard I heard it. It was very funny. I apologize funny. for that. All right. TJ concludes. I hope, and this was a short, this is a shorter version of TJ's review and we're already 15 minutes into the podcast. I hope this podcast continues for years to come and with more and more patron saint interviews and blend games along with it. Maybe one day a meetup will take place in DC and I'll get to hang out and have some beers with you all. Keep doing your thing. And obviously Dunkirk, all capped, multiple exclamation points. TJ, that is an awesome, awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. All right. Talking points, and we have to start at a place where even on social media, everyone's asking us who won the Academy Award wager. And as Gabe points out, this is several weeks old because the the Oscars were a while ago. Uh, but if you haven't been listening to the recent episodes, we all uh, gave our picks for the Academy Awards, and we tied. So then we needed a tiebreaker, and we ended up going with Captain Marvel domestic numbers. Um, the winner of the Academy Award wager is Kevin McCarthy. Oh, yes! 
Captain Marvel oh. brought in $153 million in its first weekend. I believe Kevin said 144 Gabe, is that correct? Or 140-something. 142. 142. All right. All right. I said 100 mm. uh, and Jake was in the middle. Jake said 130 So this means, according to the rules, Kevin picks the burger joint. Well, I have to pay. Yeah. And Jake has to eat in and out. Oh, it's so beautiful. Which I, really I, means there's two losers here. Not There's really, because I mean, at the end of the losers. day, I'm I'm contributing as much as I should for an In and Out burger, which is not a damn thing. Yeah, well, I went to In and Out yesterday. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you right now, I, 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 went, to, I went to I, went, I got a for nine dollars and sixty four cents. I got a double double spread cheese only, uh, vanilla and uh, chocolate milkshake, and a beautiful, beautiful array of fries. Um, so I just uh, and then that same meal at Shake Shack would have probably been close to twenty dollars. So you're happy I didn't win. Thank God. And, yeah, uh, well, first of all, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just very excited. I, I, anytime I can get Jake to eat in an out burger, right. it's a win situation for me. So Yeah. Well, next time we're all in California, apparently it's on me. So we'll figure out a time when we're doing a junket and I'm the official loser of the uh, the Academy Award bet. So, all right, news. Uh, there's a new Aladdin trailer. Jake kind of told me, it kind of got my hopes up that it's better. Um, I don't know I can agree with you, dude. Okay, here's, here's the thing. And I've, and I've been giving this a lot of thought. I don't know if it's better or if I just really like A Whole New World and that okay. I would like any string of videos cut to that song. Um, right. I do think that there were some aspects of it that they haven't touched on. Um, mostly the fun of the original film that really... Uh, I, you know, they, this is the first time really that we've seen the flying carpet. The first time we've really seen Abu. Uh, there were a lot of aspects of it that I did not like. I think as of to, up to this point, I think the casting of Jafar is so off. There's nothing menacing about that guy whatsoever. But there are also really a lot of really interesting aspects um, that I did not see coming. There's a shot where Iago is like the size of a plane chasing after Aladdin. So I don't really know where that comes from. Um, but and Will Smith seems better from the clips that I saw. Um, Will Smith being Will Smith, um, but uh, but no, it, it's it made me like the at least get more excited for the movie um, up to this point. And like I said, the, the final forty seconds of the trailer is great, but I don't know if it's just because that song is so fantastic that you put any combination of clips cut to that song and it makes it look good. You guys didn't like it, I'm assuming. It just it looks so cheap. It looks really low budget. Especially the early stuff with Aladdin running through the town, like it looks like it does look like I, a Bollywood set, like a like a bad Bollywood set, or even set, just a say. Disney Channel. It looks Disney Channel. It looks TV, and 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 when they get to the cave, it looks. I, I mean, I can't yet figure out why it looks so low budget. Um, and yet, uh, yes, Will Smith feels more like Will Smith. But this is what I guess I'll say about Robin Williams. I didn't think that the genie felt like Robin Williams, I still think it felt like the genie, and I'm I'm 100% convinced that this is just going to be us watching Will Smith be Will Smith. And maybe that's what they wanted, because they hired him, but when he's like, you ain't never had a friend like me, like it was delivered in such a Will Smith way, that I was like, oh, this is just going to be, I don't know, I'm I, I'm not on board. I'm not. Who, who uh, hurt you? Well, here's the thing, so I, I, Disney. I was, I was in the middle of the Us press junket yesterday, I think when the trailer re released, and so I didn't get to watch it till later in the day, but a lot of the tweets that I kept seeing were, 
everyone's mind changing from that teaser we saw. Oh my gosh, take all my money now. Uh, And then like the moment on Twitter was that people have now reversed their, their decisions on whether or not they're going to see the movie. Uh, I hear, and I'll say this before I get into my thoughts on the trailer. Uh, The movie still could be amazing. I mean, trailers we've seen a million times were a great trailer. The movie's terrible and the other way around. It it happens a lot. So um, this commentary is specifically based on the trailer. Um, I am having a very hard time seeing past Will Smith. I see Will Smith. Clearly, you see Will Smith. Yeah, but I think Um, that's that's kind of why they hired him to be. Yeah, but I don't. But I like Sean said I didn't see Robin Williams, Um, and I know that this is this is different. This is hand drawn animation in the original film. And okay, um, but but, okay, I I want to refute that. I want to play devil's advocate for a second. You say you didn't see Robin Williams, but we, you and I, grew up with Aladdin. We we arguably knew who the genie was before we knew who Robin Williams was. So I think it's unfair to say when you when, when we saw Aladdin, we didn't see Robin Williams because we didn't know Robin. Like to me, like I, I watch a lot of his stand up comedy and and you know think of his early days like doing Mork and all, like to me the genie is very Robin Williams so much so that his ad libs were so over the wall that the animators at Disney just had to draw to whatever it was he was saying. So I think it's kind mm. of unfair to say that the genie is not Robin Williams because he is the epit- like he is so Robin Williams that they kind of had to just not really start the animation until they knew exactly what That's fair. kind of thing they were going to go with. But I've disconnect- like, I, I disconnected for some reason. I, but that doesn't, my, my, but that doesn't my, mean that it's not Robin Williams. To me, my suspension of disbelief but my suspension of disbelief watching Aladdin, Aladdin's my favorite Disney animated film. So um, I have a very strong connection to that film. I used to have a huge crush on Jasmine when I was a kid growing up. Um, that movie was a big deal for me as a kid. Do you remember the Disney uh, VHSs, those plastic cases? They were like larger than normal oh, VHS yeah, cases. cases. Yeah. And you would open them up. Yeah. Um, I just think the trailer, uh, first of all, I don't see anything in there that looks like Guy Ritchie. Nothing in there sounds there like were a guy a couple Ritchie. Of mostly the slow motion shots that I there's that one shot where um I'm assuming it's where they throw Aladdin in the water where he's like attached to a like, chair and he's sort of um yeah. spinning backwards screaming. That was a cool shot. That cool. And there were yeah. there was another shot of like at the beginning of the trailer where Jafar is like walking toward like from behind, Jafar is like walking toward a door and then like Iago kind of flies by in the distance. There were some Really, to your point, some beautiful shots, and then some shots that really did, I will agree with you, look like a Disney Channel set. Yeah. I, I didn't find the trailer to be great. I even thought when Will Smith was introduced, it just seemed cheesy. Um, but I, again, this is a trailer. This is not the movie. Um, but I definitely did not find the trailer to change my mind about what I thought about the Will Smith reaction initially. Uh, I did not find myself changing my excitement for the movie whatsoever. Also, this movie can make ten dollars, and Disney will be fine this year. Yeah, they'll be yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. they're not. It's going to make a lot of money. Yeah, it's going to. They're make, not in any worry. It's going to make a ton. All right. Uh, before we switch topics, I want to point out that while we're in the moment, um, somebody RSVP'd for the for the Real Blend meetup in Chicago. Was and it listen, Kevin's mom? listen, jerks, someone's beat you to it now. <laughs> it's Kevin's mom, <laughs> so don't all get on an RSVP as Kevin's mom. Wait, okay? someone actually did RSVP as my mom. Someone actually RSVP'd. Oh. <laughs> As Kevin's mom. Wait, the, yes. the, that's the screen name? Yes. Oh, that's Kevin's great. Mom. <laughs> that's awesome. What's, what's sad is it like if Kevin's mom really wanted to come and there's like, there's like a, <laughs> not that we would have a bouncer or anyone with a list, but, but she says like, oh, I'm Kevin's mom. He's like, yeah, nice try. Back of the line. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. So I got back from, uh, 
South by Southwest where I got to meet some real blend fans and they came and hung out, um, but also got to see a bunch of movies. And I really want to run through quickly uh, some of the ones that I got a chance to catch up with and put them on your radar. Uh, one of the best ones that I saw while I was there is um, Booksmart, Olivia Wilde's directorial oh, I'm debut. I'm so excited to see that. It looks great. She directed Come, that, right? She directed it first yeah. time. Um, it is. So there's two movies that are going to take the um, idea of this is super bad, but with and this is super bad with girls, essentially. Um, but it has a lot more heart. Uh, although Superbad had a lot of heart um, and raunchy humor, this this sort of blends its raunchy humor with more of a female empowerment, girl power. Uh, these two best friends who have been totally dedicated their entire high school career towards getting the best grades, getting into the best, the, the right colleges. And then they look around and realize that all the burnouts and popular kids are also getting into really popular schools or really great schools. And so they said, why did we do this? We kind of wasted our time. So we're going to give ourselves one night out um, on the town before graduation. And the two leads in it are just fantastic. Like they have amazing chemistry as best friends. Um, book smart, put it on your radar. Uh, the other one that is super bad, but it's super bad with sixth graders is called Good Boys. And it's produced by um, Evan Goldberg and uh, Seth Rogen. And it's very much their style of humor. It's just it's Jacob Tremblay and two other boys who are newcomers. And it's just them dropping F-bombs and swear words and getting into a lot of trouble. They, um, they get invited to a kissing party. They don't know how to kiss girls. They want to spy on their next door neighbor who they say is a nymphomaniac. So they use a drone to spy on her and then they end up breaking the drone. So then it's just they have to replace the drone before his father comes home from work. So it's their expedition to 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 replace the drone. And it involves selling drugs and it involves getting into a fraternity fight and it involves being chased by these girls that they were spying on. And it just goes to so many crazy places. I'll be really curious when you guys see I think Booksmart on its own is going to stand out really well. Um, but I'm curious how you guys will respond to Good Boys because it's the kind of movie that plays really well at a festival because everybody's super into it and they're really laughing. But I don't know yet if like you guys will watch it at a press screening and be like, oh man, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. Sometimes comedies like that don't play. It's, it's particularly South By is such an interesting film festival because it's just kind of a fun, loose, a little bit more, um, less of like a suit and tie kind of film festival. Um, 100%. And, and, and it's a lot of times the movies that play, to your point, that play really well there, it's just a different environment. You know, like, you know, I, b- being a Texas native, it's a different world down there. So it really uh, is. You know, it's, it's, I saw Neighbors, the first Neighbors played there at the Paramount and crushed. Yeah. Uh, the first Raid played Paramount there and destroyed. And then the movie that I saw there that had the biggest impact was Cabin in the Woods. First time I saw oh, Cabin yeah. in the Woods was opening night at South by, yeah. and that audience just ate it up. Well, Cabin in the Woods is a masterpiece. Yeah. But I, you know, one thing I do want to say, uh, and I've been to South by Southwest only once, but I was covering that junket for that movie Life with Ryan Reynolds and Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't get to actually attend the festival. And I know our listeners, you know, people like to hear some of the behind the scenes stuff. How does it work when you're there, Sean? Do you like w- when you're there? Do you go to a movie? Then do you have interviews the next day where your where your interviews junket style? I know you sat down with Kevin Costner and. Woody Harrelson at one point, like what, yep. what, what was, what, what's the schedule like there? Are, are you seeing films at like a major theater? Yeah. So it's way more laid back than Toronto, where at any given point you could be running to three to four different movies, depending on where you wanted your schedule to go. There's a main movie theater, the Paramount, 
um, where they usually have a six o'clock movie and a nine thirty movie, and those are the big headliners. So, like one day in particular, they had McConaughey's Matthew McConaughey's movie, The Beach Bum, at six. And then they had Long Shot with uh, Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron at 9.30. They have a carpet out in front of the theater that the stars walk. Um, the thing about South By is that often the talent comes into town and will do press the day that they're there to show up for the premiere. Um, and then they'll leave the next day. So you have to speak to them without having seen the movie yet, which can be a little bit frustrating. Um, and it, so it's similar to doing a carpet where a lot of times you do a carpet, you haven't yet seen the film. So you're asking them questions sort of teasy. Uh, but with the Woody Harrelson, Kevin Costner deal that Netflix brought a movie called The Highwaymen, where they play original Texas Rangers who hunted down Bonnie and Clyde. And they did do a traditional junket. Um, but South by, in addition to its headliners, has a whole slate of films at other venues that you can run around and and sort of go fishing on. Like, you don't know if they're going to be good. You give them a shot. I saw a movie called The Art of Self-Defense with Jesse Eisenberg, uh, directed by Riley Stearns. It is a dark black comedy. Uh, that is really, really funny, but I found myself laughing at things that I feel ashamed that I was laughing at. Um, it's about this loser who's just put upon and hates being bullied by the people at work, so he ends up taking karate. Uh, and he has a sensei who is just psychotic, and everybody in the dojo is psychotic, and it goes to really twisted places. Um, and then we did an interview with them the following day at a karate dojo, which was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Dude, didn't you, didn't, didn't you do Cobra Kai? Didn't you meet like Ralph Macchio and all those oh, guys? Oh my God, yeah. That's amazing. So, I'm a huge fan of Karate Kid, obviously. Oh, yeah. I loved the first season of Cobra Kai. I loved it. And so South by, like all these other festivals and like Comic-Con, um, they're shifting away from just movies. And so you'll get a bigger presence of TV shows and interactive streaming and things like that. Like even the first night. So, so we, us was the opening night for South by and, um, but then the, and it's played at six. And then the nine thirty was the FX program. Um, what we do in shadows, Taika Waititi. Oh, show. I'm excited so for that. I think he showed like three episodes and then they did a big Q and a. So anyway, Ralph Macchio and Billy Zabka, and Martin Cove uh, were at South by to promote season two of, of Cobra Kai. And I got to interview uh, the three of them. And it That's blew crazy. my mind. Michelle, I showed her the picture that I have with the three of them. And Michelle said, you look like the happiest geek in the world. Like, But I mean, like, we've had this conversation before on the podcast. It's fun to interview your idols, you know, or people that you really admire for certain movies. But to interview them about the project that yeah. you yeah. love them for is so rare. It just rarely happens. Like yeah. one time I know you each got uh, Willis for the, the horrible Die Hard, right? The yeah. last but, one. Yeah, but but a Die Hard. But you but like, got yeah, Bruce Willis there, for a Die there's Hard. There's something special about like like getting Jamie Lee Curtis for Halloween. That's a good example. Perfect. Um, or like Perfect. Harrison Ford for Star Wars because like you, you basically find yourself trying to ask them about these movies in some way, shape, or form at other yeah. film junkets. Um, and... And, it, you know, it's fine, but when you have the freedom to do that um, completely, I, I was so jealous. I, Karate Kid's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think uh, – I haven't finished Cobra Kai yet because I'm kind of in the uh, – it's weird. I, I'm a TV – I don't watch enough TV shows, and I'm, I, you guys all know I'm in the middle of rewatching Breaking Bad – or not Breaking Bad, uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, but I want to watch Cobra Kai. I, I, I really do. I love – I think you'd really like it. that show, uh, that movie. So listening to Ralph Macchio say Miyagi over and over again oh, gave me gonna be nuts. It's gotta be nuts. <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. I loved it. So um, listen. So Kevin and I have each had a chance to see us. We're not gonna talk details at all. 
Um, but Kevin, on a one to ten excitement scale, where are you? Ten. It. 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 We are witnessing one of the greatest directors of our time, if not. I mean, I don't want to say all time, but we are. This. 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 This filmmaker is completely aware that audiences are smart and embraces that. And that's and us is another example of a movie that I saw two days ago. I'm still replaying it over and over again in my mind. Sean and I got on the phone at like 1 a.m. Eastern time the (laughs) other night for an hour to go through the movie together because I, I, I couldn't. I had to talk to somebody about it. I, I could not shake it. Um, but I'm curious, Sean, on your end, what it was like watching it at South by at the premiere. Like, what was the energy in that room? Um, it. I'm just curious what that was like. I'll say this. And again, this is part of the festival um, attitude where people are just kind of amped up to be at the opening night of the film. So there were times when people were laughing when the when I didn't think it was necessarily the funniest scene, but maybe it was to break the tension. Um, I think also people didn't know what to expect at all from it. I, I want to say this about it, and this doesn't give anything away. It's more horror than Get Out was. Oh yeah. So, but I feel like you can get you, that from the even from the trailer. You can tell that. Oh, that Get Out. You know, is if you had to put it into the subgenre of horror. Yeah. In the thriller category, you know, as opposed to us, seems like more of a. I don't want to say slasher because obviously I haven't seen it, but seems more yeah. like. It would it's definitely be, yeah. But, and I, I mean, think people it, 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 were it, it, expecting it, more of a measured approach. I don't think they were expecting full-blown horror. And I, I mean, and that's what it gives we're, them. We're talking full R-rated brutal horror. I mean, this yeah. is not, this is a relentless film. It, it, I even want to, let's, let's stop there. Yeah. So, yeah. It, I, all I'll say is go with someone you want to talk about the movie with after. Because the re- the only reason I got on the phone with Kevin that late because as anyone who listens to this podcast know, if you get on a conversation with Kevin, it's not going to be short. Nah. Well, Which I love. You, I texted you and I said, can you please call me? I needed to yeah. talk to somebody. And yes. I'll, say, I'll say this, and this is not about the movie at all, specifically. Um, we see a lot of films, um, but not a lot of films garner discussion amongst the group of people who just saw it. And we take shuttles back and forth to these screenings from our hotels. And generally we get back on the shuttle and you just go back to your hotel. But I was on this shuttle with, with the audience who had just seen the film, and the entire drive home was just, like, it sparked such an interesting conversation, and yeah. that, to me, is what cinema should be doing. Um, and I don't, I can't remember a film, in my opinion, that made me want to call somebody at one in the morning and speak <laughs> to, to them for an hour uh, about. So yep. I, that's all, I mean, again, staying away from the movie itself, we are lucky to be witnessing this filmmaker in our lifetime. That's so all then should I be offended then that I didn't get an hour-long phone call from Sean to discuss <laughs> Sh- Shazam? <laughs> well, dive into Shazam because you finally got to see it. And I'm not I sure talked I about it anymore. You, I talked you, about you it briefly. You and Kevin enjoy your, your best us friendship you have going on. I'll sit over here and my thumbs. <laughs> well, I also, I also didn't want to come month. across as like rubbing this in anyone's face. We're, we're, just, we're just talking about it. And I know Jake hasn't seen it yet. And I want Jake to see it. No, and I told Jake, enjoy your friendship. I'm like Jake, call me after you get out. Um, we we're we're just generally we were genuinely lucky to see it when we did, but I I really want to know. I really want to talk to Jake about it afterwards. And in Dave, fairness, I can't wait to talk to you about us when I see it next week. 
yeah, gay, in fairness, specifically you and Gabe only can have gay. an hour long conversation about not seeing us. Oh, we have a I lot of talks about you guys. Don't you worry. <laughs> Don't Jake, you worry. tell people how good Shazam is. It's so freaking fun. It's so fun. Also, a massive horror film. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's really. Uh, it's, it's. I just had a, a smile on my face the whole time. It's. It's right. absolutely. It's just. Just from start to finish, it has that '80s Amblin feel. That really, and you're gonna start. You're gonna start hearing that a lot because that's really what they went for, and I think they nailed it. So I think a lot of people are gonna say that. There, it's. It's a lot more family friendly than most superhero movies, specifically the the DCEU films. <laughs> Um, but not in a bad way. It, it 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 sort of reminded me of like those '80s family kid movies that still knew how to treat kids like adults. I mean, there are yeah. some scare. Mm-hmm. Like, like people keep asking me, "Well, can I bring my ten year old to it?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, there are a lot of scenes that a ten year old would love, but also like there are some scary moments in there where like your kid needs to be a little bit more like ready for kind of a, a potentially scary moment, particularly." Um, there, you know, when it comes to the villain, I don't want to give too much away, but there are a lot of aspects of the villain that are scary visually. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, a PG Disney superhero film, uh, but it's a lot more family friendly. It's, you know, it's, it's big with a splash of the Goonies meets Superman. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I was curious, um, cause I know Jake, I know you interviewed Zach Levi, Asher Angel, and then um, and then Jack, Jack Dylan Grazer, right? Who's from, from it? So Asher plays the younger Zach Levi, or the before he's yeah transitioned. Yeah, Billy yeah. Um, if if this is not too spoilery, how does does Asher come back on screen throughout the film? Yes, it's it's, okay. it's uh, unlike Big, where when the when the kid disappears to become Tom Hanks, and then he's Tom Hanks for the entire film. It it goes back, back and, and forth. forth. So so Asher. Okay. Is is very much uh, a part of of, of the film. Yeah, because I think there's a shot in the trailer I saw where Asher's walking as himself, yeah. and then and then turns into Shazam and pulls that woman out of the way of that like truck that's coming or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I was I was wondering how much back yeah. and forth they. I mean, went. he's he's a good he's a, he's got a good uh, good do chunk they, of the film. Do they mimic each other pretty well? Like the I, like Sean, Levi, I, I think they do a good. I think if yeah. anything, uh, Zachary Levi does a really good job of capturing what it means to be a fourteen-year-old. Cool. Well, I'm excited, I'm excited I love, to see it. What I love most about it, also, I think Zachary Levi. This is an this is an example of just perfect, perfect casting for this part. And there's he maintains that you you never forget that he's a fourteen-year-old boy in that body. And there are moments in this movie, not spoiling a single thing, where you almost felt it was like the heroic moment where he's just going to be, I'm I'm the hero now, you know? And in all of those moments, he's always like, someone's like, well, what do we do now, Shazam? And he's like, don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't have any idea. Because I don't, you remember, um, one of my that. biggest knocks <laughs> of, as much as I, I loved Kevin Hart in the Jumanji sequel, to yeah. me, he was the, 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 the one adult actor in that movie who didn't capture the younger guy that he was supposed to be playing, the high school guy. Like, he was essentially yeah. playing Kevin Hart, as opposed to The Rock was very much playing sort of the nerdy guy. And, and you know, that's what I was sort of afraid of going in, is like, once he transforms into Shazam, is he just going to be Zachary Levi? But he really seemed to make a point to shed all of, usually, the pomp and circumstance that comes with being a superhero in order to remind us that he really is just a 14-year-old kid. And I'm curious, and... Yeah, and this is not this is not a joke. I'm just curious because I remember, um, and I find this history so fascinating about Captain Marvel um, and the character being called Captain Marvel. And I was doing so much research before I did the Captain Marvel interviews, 
about the name Captain Marvel. I believe it started with this Shazam character in the like early days, and then there was some type of similarity to Superman. They stopped publishing it, uh, and then Captain Marvel came up with you know their own comic at Marvel in the '60s, I believe, and then they no longer could call these Shazam comics Captain Marvel, from what I understand. Does the movie make reference at all? Is, is that a spoiler to ask? Uh, does it reference at all the idea that he's called Captain Marvel? If it did, I didn't see it. There is okay. um, the Captain high school Sparkle is named because because Captain Marvel, the original Captain Marvel, used to say Shazam, or it was right. a kid. It was say, and then he became, and that was before it was owned by DC. Was owned by a different company. company. But, then, and but the but high DC school sued is named them, right? after that company. Oh, that's really? funny. Yeah, so I, I, that's funny. I, I don't know if I have this correct, but I believe they stopped publishing Shazam or Captain Marvel because. DC thought it was too close to Superman, I think. Kevin, there's a guy who, Uncanny Comic Quest, who follows our show often, who wrote this article for you specifically. Like, he tags you when he wrote it, and it's like, why Shazam is called Captain Marvel, or why Captain Marvel is called Shazam. It's so I'll interesting I'll find it for you, I'll send me. it over to you. And they're he both coming the out the same it. year. It's like, how, I know. how I know. random is that? I, 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 I asked... Within weeks of each other. Yeah, I asked Brie Larson. I was like, "Do you know Zach Levi? Did you did you did you talk about this coincidence?" And she's like, "Yeah, I mean, I know him, but you know, I I, I have no idea why the studios decided to release two. Uh, so so in the movie, he's never called Captain Marvel. No. no. Wow. But that, that, there's a joke though in the trailer where they call him Captain Sparkle Fingers, which I yes. think is maybe a reference to that. But I don't know. Maybe. I will say. Maybe. Um. So I I uh, hosted a special screening and surprised a Chicago audience uh, with Zachary. And as we were leaving, and he was saying bye to the crowd, and they were just about to start watching the movie, he said, all right, guys, enjoy Captain Marvel. Oh, sorry, I mean Shazam. Uh, <laughs> See, I, 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 I'm, I'm interviewing him this weekend. I'm very curious about that aspect of it, because uh, I know he was very vocal about coming out and defending Brie Larson after all the negativity that was uh, happening with Captain Marvel, which, by the way, um, as much as I didn't particularly love Captain Marvel, I don't think any of us loved it. We uh, it, it, we understand the importance of it and what it's doing for cinema. Um, sure. I was happy to see it do well. Yeah, um, of be- Because sure. the bubble of the internet and the negativity we are all experiencing online sometimes made it seem like that film was like doomed because there was so much hate on Rotten Tomatoes for it. So to see it do well just kind of made me go, that's awesome. And people were still all going right. to the movies. That's all that matters. This is a listener-submitted talking point, and I'm going to hit you guys with it. You have not heard this yet. So you're going to give me your off-the-cuff, honest reaction to this question. This is from Joel McFarlane on Twitter, who wanted to ask us specifically, what's the movie that you've seen most in your life? The amount of times that you've seen one single film. Can you think of which one it is? I think mine mine has to be Jurassic Park. I mean, yeah. from, from watching it on, to me, it's one of the most easily watchable films ever made. I think I remember uh, getting it uh, on VHS when I was a kid and just ruining that tape because I was watching it over and over again. Uh, it's it's the movie that's probably for me most if it's on cable. It doesn't matter where it's at. Uh, you know, because it's, it's, it's not to, to dismiss it. It's a collection of really some amazing scenes. So I have to turn it on to see what, what scene it is. Um, doesn't have to be an action scene. Uh, for me to really try to stop and figure out uh, whether or not I want to watch it because I'm going to. Uh, and then honestly, I you know at this point it's tw- more than 25 years later, and I don't think uh, a three or four month span of my life has gone by where I haven't watched Jurassic Park. 
More so than any Star Wars movie? Yeah, more so than wow. any Star Wars movie. Yeah. Interesting. Kevin, how about you? What, what's your reaction? It, it, when you asked me that, two films came to mind, and I, and I don't know uh, mathematically which one I've seen more, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, or Face Off. But I remember, like, <laughs> Face Off's random because I got I became obsessed with that movie when I was, like, in high school. And I've, I remember watching it so many times. And I don't think Face Off's the greatest movie ever made by any, by any means. I love that movie, but... It was just a movie I was obsessed with. I also really. But, but would you argue that, like, statistically, it's probably then T2? Terminator 2. But just because yeah. it came out earlier in your life? Yeah. I mean, Terminator 2 was a movie I used to ride my bike to Blockbuster or the Farm Fresh, whatever that was located there, and I would get the VHS and bring it home or the DVD or whatever it was. I mean, I think I owned six copies of Terminator 2, like, all different, like, special editions. I got editions. one of them for you. Yeah. Um, Terminator <laughs> 2 is my favorite film of all time. And it's interesting because I always say either that or True Romance, but ultimately speaking, the movie that made me fall in love with cinema, I think is my favorite movie of all time is Terminator 2. Um, so much so that I used to, you know, I loved watching the special edition of that film, which has my favorite scene in the movie where Arnold smiles. Um, but yeah, that movie to me is so rewatchable, incredibly brilliant, and um, so far ahead of its time. So much so, the reason why I rewatch it so much is because it still looks good. It still looks yeah. like a 2019 yeah. Yeah, film. So, well, um, and this is—I yeah. brought this up to the to the Cobra Kai guys. I said one thing that works in your favor is that the original Karate Kid movie holds up. So when people watch Cobra Kai, like say you watch a reboot of a show and it's based on an old movie and then you go back and rewatch that movie, but it's so dated. And yeah. so, and they said exactly, they said it's set in the eighties, but we didn't want to inundate it with like eighties pop culture references that we knew would instantly, we knew this was a universal story that anybody could watch at any given time. And I never even thought about that, but I don't think Cobra Kai, the show would be as successful if the original Karate Kid wasn't wasn't good. So um, my answer to this, Joel, uh, when I as soon as I saw it, I knew it had to be uh, Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Fellowship of the oh, Ring. Uh, great, I, had, man. I watched that over. And, and, and not a not a month goes by that I don't pop in Fellowship of the Two Towers. What is it called? Which one is that? Yeah. Um, it's Back to the Future. It's the first Back to the Future, which I just adore. It's not even Die Hard. I love Die Hard and I've seen Die Hard a bazillion times. But Back to the Future is to me that movie makes me feel better. You know, you watch a movie that it's that's so perfect <laughs> that it just makes you feel great. The performances are great. The script is flawless. Uh, like Jake says with Jurassic Park, anytime it's on any of the cable channels, I don't care where it is, I just stop watching it. Uh, I often drag the boys in to watch it with me. They hate the movie now at this point because I've ruined it for them. Uh, but the first Back to the Future, the, uh, the, I will also say that that is the best trilogy of all time. Um, but I the agree first with you. movie. Yeah, first movie's fantastic. I think Bats yes. of the Future and Lord you of the Rings. Me. Yeah, two you best trilogies. Yeah. But I, I will say, I, I like Bats of the Future more than Star Wars. I mean, I, I have no I do too. like to wake up in the too. morning and to go to bed yeah. at night and be so wrong. Yeah. But Jake, no, you, you do know that Bats of the Future is better than Star Wars. It, it is. is. As yeah. a trilogy. As a trilogy. Right. Sean, you're literally wearing a Star Wars shirt right now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean we don't love Star Wars. No, I love it. It's great. But by the way, another one popped into my mind that maybe on the same number of times as T2 was The Sandlot. Uh, I can quote that entire film from start to finish. Uh, Wendy Peppercorn. Oh, that scene is amazing. Squints. I mean, I've, I, I have the PF flyers from that movie. That movie was my childhood. All so. right. This week in movies. Um, has anyone seen Five Feet Apart? Nope. No. Did anyone see Wonder Park? No. No. 
Well, instead, we're going to talk about Captive State. And because of that, I would like to throw it to our exclusive interview that the Real Blend guys did with the director Rupert Wyatt, where we talked all about the alien invasion that takes place in Captive State. Give it a listen right now. Hey guys, producer Gabe here. Just wanted to pop on to say that we had a little bit of audio trouble with this interview. Uh, Rupert's audio is a little distorted, but I think you'll be able to follow the conversation throughout. So I hope you enjoy. Hello. Hi, Rupert. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you? We're great. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. This is the Real Blend Podcast. You're joined by uh, Sean O'Connell, uh, Jake Hamilton, and Kevin McCarthy. Um, we're all going to go one at a time and just shoot questions at you um, about Captive State, if that works. That sounds great. Yes. Fan- fantastic. Um, I'm most curious about in this current industry of superhero projects and adaptations of familiar properties What's the hardest part about getting an original property like Captive State off the ground? I think it always comes down to budget, if, if one's looking at it from that perspective. Um, if you can make sense of something to people who are ultimately going to invest money into a creative endeavor, um, the sales value of how it would possibly sell as a genre film, the sales value is how it would sell with the cost attached, the sales value what I may have, having made previous films, I think, you know, in the hard light of day, that that's always how it breaks down. And, you know, it was always my intention to make this film for a budget um, uh, in order to have creative freedom to do certain things. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the great thing about a very healthy film industry um, right now is that there are companies like Participant Media who are looking to do interesting, challenging elevated genre film. Uh, so, so yeah, it's great. You know, Rupert, I was uh, struck by your uh, cinematography, uh, Alex's cinematography in the film in regards to the handheld nature of it. Um, it almost felt like you're watching a documentary uh, at times. And, and I mean that in a complimentary way, because you feel like you're watching footage of, of a story that you're finding. Um, I don't know if that was your specific intention, but can you talk about the handheld use of the camera work specifically kind of toward the beginning as well and what you were kind of going for uh, in regards to that, that, that look. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, thank you. It, it's interesting because to an extent, some of it was dictated by practical needs. We, we, we set out to make something very much um, location uh, exclusive. We shot into pre-existing locations in Chicago. Uh, we obviously went in and dressed them and, and, and art directed them, but there were no stage builds with this film. It was always this quite much more European approach to filmmaking in the mainstream, which is to kind of capture the world around you rather than try and create it. Um, and so with that idea, we, we you know, we, we wanted our actors to lead us. We didn't want to kind of, in a way, block them. We wanted them to, to create the scene and then have the camera follow. Um, and that does certainly create a certain uh, kinetic energy to, to, to the opposite of the camera. The, the, um, the general kind of intention for me from the get-go was to make dirty sci-fi, if that makes sense, to make kind yeah. of grounded reality so that both the audience and the characters within the film, it's as if, it's as if they're looking through the window of their homes and what they see outside is what we're capturing. Um, and uh, that that means putting the camera on the ground and, and not going into that kind of God's eye um, uh, perspective that a lot of um, more kind of Hollywood mainstream uh, genre films tend to do these days. 
Rupert, I'm actually uh, talking to you right now from Chicago. I live in Chicago, and, and, and it's a very obviously specific city uh, full of, of prideful people who uh, very much are proud of where they're from. And it's, you know, people take this city very personally. Whenever a film is set here, they watch it very closely. Can you talk about, I don't want to make the interview specifically about Chicago, but the choice of picking which city you picked and uh, the responsibility that comes with making sure that you get that city right. Because this is one of those cities that had it been this or Philadelphia or New York, whatever the case may be, the residents of that city are going to watch it a little bit more closely than maybe everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I love, well, I love your city. I mean, I'm just on a personal level. <laughs> Before I even got into the kind of creative, I fell in, I shot there, I did a TV pilot in Chicago and fell in love with it. I think to me it's the, the great American city if you if you discount New York, um, which is more of an international city, I, I'd say. So so Chicago to me is emblematic of the true American um, sort of state and, and, and that's architectural, that's cultural, that's um, climate. It's 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 the it's the diversity. Um, it's it's all of those things. So the opportunity to sort of the story that we're telling in the micro, in many ways, we're telling on the ground in different specific neighbourhoods, but it's ultimately trying to represent a more global aspect of the occupation. It, it just made a whole heap of sense to shoot in Chicago. Um, we originally, funnily enough, when we started writing the film and developing it, we thought of Boston because we thought, well, that's the that's the cradle of revolution in this country. Um, but interestingly, Boston's sort of in recent years become quite gentrified and, and it's changed a great deal. And I, I really wanted this film to have a certain air of um, history to it, you know, and, and uh, Chicago still has that in many neighborhoods. It's still very much the neighborhood you walk the streets and it could be 80, 90 years ago. Rupert, um, one aspect of the film that really fascinated me, and I'm, I'm not going to give away any kind of spoilers or anything, but this is a film that right from the very beginning, you understand that because of the setup, because of the premise, um, regular cultural rules and societal rules, um, they just don't exist or they or they operate differently. Um, and a lot of times, like in a film, when you're watching it, there's a safety net to the fact that, oh, well, this stuff can't happen because, you know, there are rules that would prevent things like this from happening. But you set up a society where, you know, the rules that everybody are being, uh, that people are playing by are completely up to you, you know, as a storyteller and as, as a co-screenwriter. Can you just talk about the freedom of, of having the ability to set up this environment and this society where expected rules aren't in play and you can do almost anything you want? Sure, yeah. I mean, look, it's, 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 it's the world creation side of things is always really fun and appealing and it, it's a great way to sort of create the sandbox within which you're going to tell the story. To me, the most important thing always is the human uh, narrative and, and what lies mm -hmm. in it. Very often, a lot of big mainstream films can, can lose sight of that and the fireworks display becomes everything. And I think if you look at the most successful films, both big and small, it's ultimately the human stories that play out that are, that are, that are the kind of bedrock of success. So, um, but that said, it's, it's, it's really interesting to sort of push into a, a future, a, a sort of a speculated future of, of this country and, and start to kind of pick away at the checks and balances that make this, you know, the great American, sorry, the great, the, the great democracy of the last 200 years. Um, and if you start to kind of sort of remove those civil liberties that we take for granted, what does that do? And, and, and also 
take away the economic sort of success of this great superpower, what does that do? You know, what, what are fuel shortages do to a country? They normally put, you know, you look at third world countries, you normally see a lot more motorbikes on the street. Um, and you, in our case, we put a lot more motorbikes on the street of Chicago. Um, uh, it, it's sort of in a way like you take away digital technology because in our in our story, digital technology has been outlawed because it's it's a very effective way of suppressing dissent and open communication. Um, so we've reverted to a more analog world. Uh, newspaper offices work off typewriters, or um, or people use payphones, and, and so. To me, it always should come from uh, the rules. Should come from the storytelling. How, how how do you want to tell your story, um, and how that affects the, the human characters? But to be able to then create the visual repercussions of that is is, is a lot of fun. It creates a particular tone and style to the story you're telling, and I think in this case. It, it, it's a film that does not lead with a very high-tech approach, with dirty, low-fi sci-fi, um, and I love that. You know, Rupert, I'm always fascinated by how a director decides to open his film or her film uh, in regards to credits and title cards, um, and I think it's interesting how you did yours, and I was curious... Uh, the thought process that goes into the way you want to open your film. And and your film obviously opens with a scene. You get the title card of Captive State, and then you kind of go into this really cool credit sequence, but you give us the title first. Um, I was just curious what your thought process is on that in regards to when a movie opens, your audience is immediately suspending their disbelief in a, in a moment, in a story. Uh, and that opening is very important. So w- what is your thought process of the way you executed your title card and your credits in this film? Sure, yeah. I think, you know, it sounds a little glib, uh, but I would say you look at it from the kind of the, 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 the relationship between storyteller and audience in many ways, the beginning and the end of, of, of a story uh, sometimes the most important, you know, take off and landing. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you find the audience as quickly as possible and how do they find you? Uh, and, and then how do you leave the audience at the end and, and what they take away from it? So um, in this case, you know, we made, as, as, as writers, Erica and I, my co-writer and I, we made this choice early on. Okay, well, we don't really want to tell the story of an invasion. We want to tell the story 10 years in. We want to tell the story of when we've lost. And, and, it, and, and that was always our intention, to, 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 to find the body of the narrative within that uh, framework. That said, we are uh, a film dealing with an alien invasion and subsequent occupation, so the audience is always going to be asking that question. Where are they from? How did they invade? Where, you know, and I would say we were pretty bare bones with, with giving the audience that information um, in the main body of the film. You know, uh, because in many ways our film is less about that. It's not an H.G. Wells War of the Worlds like narrative where you know their vulnerabilities, how do we beat them, why are they here? It's much more about the human side of of, um, of, of, the, of the of the invasion and the occupation. The fact that there are particular humans in our stories in our story that are that are collaborating and and what that means. They're the, they're the real enemy in many ways. Um, so, so it, 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 when we when we made the film, we had our first cut. We were sort of left in a way scratching our heads, going, "Do do the audience need more? Do they need to understand more? Do they need to know what happened in the intervening ten years?" And it came it became clear 
And more often than not, this happens in a studio meeting where they give you the note and you have to enact it. But actually, this was a round table of the filmmakers where we were genuinely asking the question, well, does the audience need to know what happened in the 10 years between the first contact and our story? And, and the answer was clearly yes. So we set about, um, we went to actually a, a, a title designer by the name of Carl Cooper, who you guys may know. Um, he, 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 he's most well known for designing the opening credits of Seven. Um, oh, wow. Fincher's guy, right? He's Fincher's guy. He was a long-term collaborator of Fincher, yeah. He runs a company called Prolock. And most title sequences in this day and age have been designed by, by Kyle Cooper. He's this uh, invisible uh, weapon. He's incredible. Um, but, um, but, I, but I knew him from a past um, development project, and I went to him and I said, listen, I want to be able to, if you took the parallax view, uh, and that great, you know, that great sequence within that film with Warren Beatty. Um, if we could, in a way, through footage, uh, tell this story of, of what happened in the ten years, can we, let's do that together. And that's that's where the, the titles came from. Um, so yeah, it, it became clear that it was really, really, really relevant. Rupert, you mentioned uh, War of the Worlds, and obviously this is a, a genre, a subgenre, that has been taken a lot of different directions by a lot of different directors. And oftentimes we hear directors talk about the positive influences that they took from directors to, to make their film. But I'm curious, this is a genre that has also been um, yielded a few missteps by by some people. What were some, a- some aspects of the genre that maybe other directors got wrong, that you, or at least that you haven't been a fan of, that you thought to yourself, that's not a direction I want to go in. I want to try to avoid that. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think if you took War of the Worlds, and I, let's say, let's take the Spielberg War of the Worlds um, as an example. I love that film. I actually think it's one of his, it's one of my favorite Spielberg films. Me too. It's awesome. That movie's awesome. Yeah, and, and, and Tom Cruise's character is fascinating. He's explored and he's grounded. He's a, he's a blue-collar construction guy and, and thrown into this sort of completely otherworldly event. Um, and right there, from the get-go, you understand, you have an empathy with, with the character. It's not it's less about the invasion, but more about the human experience of that invasion. But if you, if you think of the way Spielberg approached that film, it's through these graphic, fleeting images, whether they be a, a train on fire, um, whether they be bodies floating down a river, which I know he must have seen come and see uh, <laughs> the, the Russian film. I mean, his record, it's, it's really interesting the kind of like Anton Klimov, the Russian director. I'm pretty sure is is one of Spielberg's favorite directors because in that film, Come and See, um, there's a scene where this, the young boy is set during the Second World War, and this young boy is deafened by these bombs, and for about five minutes. All you hear is ringing in his ears. And I'm like, same as Private Ryan. So, but, but, but what, what Spielberg's genius in many ways is, whether they be real-world references or cinematic references, they're always grounded. They always come from a place that's wholly relatable, even in, 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 a, in, a, in a sci-fi film at that scale and ambition. And I think, to me, that's always the kernel of success, um, rather than looking at things from the, uh, the technical or the meta aspect, if that makes sense. Uh, it's very important to emphasize the fact that Captive State is a character-driven film, and, and most of your drama does come from the characters that you're introduced to. But I would be remiss uh, if I didn't just ask, 
about your creature design. Um, you know, they, you pick very specific points for us to to meet the aliens or to see the aliens. And I won't talk about how they're used, but I would imagine the challenge is just coming up with the design that hasn't been used before in the genre. So can you talk about the evolution of just how you decided what your aliens are going to look like? Sure, yeah. I, I, it was a challenge, you know, because in many ways this film, I was so focused on the human aspect of the storytelling that I sort of woke up one day and went, oh my God, I don't even know what these aliens look like. And, 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 <laughs> and of course, you know, it, 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 it's so key ultimately to what, how they got here and, and where they exist and how they breathe or don't breathe our atmosphere. And, um, but I started similar to the world creation from, from the place of logic, which is, okay, well, they come from a carbon, carbon-based planet clearly, because they're looking for strip miners. They're, they're, they're here to colonize us. We are a carbon-based planet with fossil fuels, so the environmental aspect is very important to me. If, if this film is in any way political, I would say it's, it's, it's right there that I would like to focus. Um, but, but in terms of how they therefore look and breathe and act, I felt like, well, how can I relate that to something that we understand? So I looked into the insect world, and I came across this really interesting documentary of, of a swarm of wasps uh, attacking a beehive. And, and immediately right there, I thought, okay, I get it. The bees are sacrificing themselves to save the, um, to save the hive against these very colonizing, invading, terraforming wasps. And so then this notion of having an insectoid-like appearance kind of evolved from that. And ultimately, I wanted to make them feeble underneath when, you, when all is said and done. The face of the enemy is actually a, a, a tragic, somewhat empathetic one. It's a sort of feeble in, uh, species, but it's got this very carefully constructed, pretty fierce and armature that, um, that relates to its emotions. And the way I ultimately was very directly inspired by how to create that was um, a sculptor by the name of Anthony Gormley. Uh, one of his sculptures is, is this amazing humanoid figures made entirely out of spikes. Um, and I saw it one day uh, at an art exhibition, and, and I um, started work from there. I gave it to a concept designer, and I said, that's what I'm looking for. You know, Rupert, I, this is this is the thing I've always found fascinating. I always found it in, uh, interesting when you see like a musician um, enter into the acting world. Uh, obviously, Machine Gun Kelly was in Bird Box. Now he's in your film. Uh, you look at Lady Gaga and Star Is Born. Um, but I'm always interested how they're credited, and I don't I don't think this comes from you as a director. But like for example, Machine Gun Kelly is is credited as Machine Gun Kelly in the film. Um, when you direct someone like that, do you are, do you call them by their do you, do you call do you call them Colson? Do you call him Machine Gun Kelly? I'm always just curious how that works as a director when you're directing a musician. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's, I was asking exactly the same question when I first met him. What do I call him? <laughs> <laughs> he called him MGK or But I thought I never called him Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> what did you call him? Did you, do, did you go MGK or did you go uh, Colson? No, I called him Colson because it... I think uh, huh. I think it made him feel more vulnerable. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's awesome, Rupert. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. We're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Good talking. 
We really want to thank Rupert Wyatt for jumping on the phone with us. That was a great conversation. He gave us some great insight into the making of that film and also getting a film like that off the ground. Kevin, I loved your handheld question. I think he really responded to that well. Yeah, I just really, thank you. I wish I could have talked to him about Rupert Wyatt Earp. I just really was, I really wanted to get into that with him, but I just didn't have time. It was just, it bummed me out that I didn't get to go there with him, so... Uh, and of course, the Machine Gun Kelly question was really, really funny too. <laughs> it's a question love- that I wanted to know. I mean, like, I wanted, like, what do you refer to that person as? Like, is you know, you're in, directing somebody in a serious scene. Do you go Machine Gun? Do, you do this? I, I don't know what you say. <laughs> hey, you machine. Uh, machine. Can I get another take of that? <laughs> I kind of laughed that he was like, I was thinking about that myself when we <laughs> when we hired him. So, yeah. uh, Captive State obviously is playing in a few theaters. I believe it's in New York and L.A. right now. It's going wider. Uh, this Friday, March 15th. So please give it a shot. Uh, we are moving on to this week's blend game. Uh, the best it was... one ever. See, now here's where we're going to differ um, because we're playing hashtag shot blend. And what we are tasked with doing, and I'm I'm vamping here because I need Gabe to put the order in because he hasn't yet. And I know there's no way in hell that we all picked the same thing. Did um, any of us pick the same one? Wow! Because it's impossible. I thought my pick was going to be the same ones as your. T- I actually was talking to my wife Lauren today, and I said, I was like going through my my favorite shots. I'm like, but if I pick this one, I bet you Sean and Jay Pie picked it too. Really? We all didn't pick That's the same one. I, but I, I but here's you picked from a technical angle. I picked from the heart, and uh, that's what made this so hard. I pick, see, I picked it from the combination of what you just said. Did, okay, I need to ask, did you pick the Children of Men car scene? That's no. what I thought. That Oh, that's what I thought you picked. No. Okay. Did you pick the thumbs up Terminator going down? Uh, wait, I, I, are, are we revealing this now? Well, I'm just guessing. Just, I just want to guess yours. <laughs> that's all I care about. Now, just to clarify to our audience. All right, this, Kevin, go first. You but go no, first. but this has to be an uninterrupted shot. Meaning That was the hard part. Yes, I mean, that was yes. it. So either a single frame. Oh, a shot itself or a yes. shot that's done through tracking but has not been broken. Um, so I guess, first. Uh, oh wait, is that the order we're going, this game? All right. Yes. Um, well, it's, it's funny to me because my favorite shot, type of shot in the history of movies is a dolly zoom, mm-hmm. um, which is technically, I guess, called a vertigo shot, right? So you zoom the camera, pull it back. At the same time, it creates this, uh, interesting anxiety. The background leaves, the person stays in the foreground. Um, I think the shot is so simplistic, yet, if done right, speaks volumes. Um, so I went I'm with Jaws. I mentioned something that I wonder if you, you went with Jaws, did you? Yeah. I want to ask you guys something. Does this happen to you when you're sitting on an airplane? When you're backing away from the gate, if a if a truck outside moves yes. and the plane's not moving? Yep. You feel Does like that throw you off? It's yeah. the same thing, right? It's, it's the same thing that, that happens to me all the time. Yeah. Wait, did, and that's I, the I predicted does. Kevin's shot before we started rolling. Well, but he put it on Twitter, though. That's cheating. Well, that's cheating. I mean, yeah, but no one knew that I was actually well, going to pick that. What's funny is that you put, I actually thought you were going to pick that, <laughs> and then you put it on Twitter, and I go, okay, yeah. well, then he must not be yeah. picking that. Because I did that as a, a, did it on that's a good bait and Well, it works. Well done. It's an amazing shot. Great shot. Great shot. But also, it says everything without saying anything you know what i mean like just the sheer look on roy scheider's face um and the horror like i can't like there's a great and there's another great version of that shot that scorsese used in goodfellas when they're at the uh 
diner together. And just, but like, you know, it's an effective shot, clearly, and it can be used really well. Is it on Ray Liotta's face? Is it going on Ray, I think it's Ray on, Liotta? I think it's a, no, it's a two shot. They're both across oh. each other. Yes, yes, it's yes, like, yes, yes. It's the yes. outside window. Um, but I, I just can't think, I mean, like, it's interesting because I, I, I wanted to go to Hitchcock's Vertigo for it, even though the movie, the shot wasn't created for that, but it was made famous for that, which is why it's called, people call it the Vertigo shot. Dolly Zoom is just a, like, I feel like it's such an interesting shot because it's so practical and all, and mostly done from what I understand in camera. I've tried to do it before. It's very hard to do. Um, mm. You're trying to keep everything in focus, um, but you're also creating such a unique anxiety in the audience. We're basically taken into the head of the character in the moment, um, and they stay right there with you as the background yeah. leaves. And just that moment in Jaws to me is arguably one of the greatest shots ever. So that's what I had to go with. It's a brilliant pick. All right, I'm going to go because Jake's is heartfelt. Um, and I, mine was more, it's more technical. Uh, and I wanted to go with a shot that was, that's complicated to pull off because and we've had this conversation on the show before. There are a lot of times when we're in a really long unbroken shot and you're a minute or two into it and you hit whoever's next to you and you go, oh my God, they haven't cut yet. You know, like this, this is still one shot. And then you think of, to me, the first thing that jumps into my mind is how often someone screwed it up, you know? Like, you got so far along and someone flubs a line or an extra gets in the way or something stupid happens. So I was looking at really long, unbroken shots that also mattered to the movie, that weren't just there for gimmick of, like, look what we can do. So I went with the opening uh, unbroken shot to introduce Boogie Nights. Oh, which, wow. The way okay. that it works well with the music... Um, it's choreographed to the music, uh, and it introduces all of the major characters, um, in their element. And there's so much chaos going on in, in the bar, uh, in the club as the camera's moving through. It goes from the street, the marquee, through the sky, uh, in through, in a Goodfellas type way. You know, I almost went with the Goodfellas one also for the very same reason. It sets up the world in a way that a bad script would take, you know, an eternity to introduce all of these characters in really clunky ways. Paul Thomas Anderson, because he's a genius, <laughs> comes up with a way to introduce his massive sprawling uh, army of characters in their completely unique and colorful world in an unbroken shot that um, should be virtually impossible to pull off. And he decides, I'm going to open my movie this way and just drop it on the floor and say, go ahead, you know, beat this. So blows me away, blows wow. me away. Awesome choice. And there's another great unbroken shot in that movie when William H. Macy goes yes. and finds his wife cheating oh, on him. That, oh, that that shot. Incredible. Just that whole sequence just makes my stomach. Just, back oh. to the car. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, mine's a little bit harder to really explain why it is my favorite, but it was the first one that I thought of whenever we were assigned this last week. And then I went 10,000 different directions. I looked at people's list to see uh, what they picked. And I kept coming back to this one. And I, mine is also a Spielberg film. But it's, uh, I'll show it to you guys. It's the last time we see the T-Rex roar in Jurassic oh, Park. The T-Rex roars, everything's crumbling, and then just the absolute, like, cherry on top is the banner falls that yeah. says the dinosaurs ruled the earth. And it's just yeah. like, I, I honestly, I get teary-eyed just thinking about this. It's this feeling yeah. of, like, after you've run a marathon and you cross the finish line and you just sit there and you, like, you see so often you see marathoners just break out into tears because it's just like, they've just been through so much and it's just this final, like... Crap! Like I'm getting seriously, I'm literally getting chills right now just talking about that. Like just the music, like the John Williams score, 
the the perfect framing of that uh every you know every everything about that shot and, and, and the t-rex still like she still looks beautiful when you look at that shot today i mean like like just looking at that image just excites me um awesome. so like i said it's it's the first you know if you don't know what i'm talking about it's after the you know sam and and the kids and laura have you know they're escaping the actual building after the velociraptors were chasing them the t-rex sort of saves the day and right before that cuts to them getting in the jeep with john hammond we get that one final shot of t-rex just letting out one last roar as the banner falls in front of her uh it's just it's it's my single absolute favorite shot of all time and it's just it's it's Harder for me to sort of kind of put into words, but it, it mixes nostalgia, it mixes emotion, it mixes what I love about Spielberg and blockbusters and the cinematic theatrical experience, and it's just I, I absolutely worship it. That's a great. All, all I love the uh, direction all three of us went because yeah. like it's interesting because my shot is technical but also emotional. There's a there's a sense of anxiety that I found that shot to be mm-hmm. interesting in. So yeah, very nice. All right, Timothy Sealer uh, says Omar Sharif's entrance in Lawrence of Arabia, the desert scene. Ben Cheney says Sicario, sundown in the desert as the soldiers oh, disappear yeah. into the darkness. Deacon's rules hashtag Shopland. Uh, Desiree says there was a firefight shot in Boondock. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, and Danny Gurch, who is great on social for us, picked one that I was really going to go with, which is the staircase shot from the end of the Truman show. That's a great lives. one. Um, yeah. Fantastic. I saw, uh, a Dun- so I saw a Dunkirk one come across our, yeah, our there was feed a Dunkirk there. One. Yeah. Oh, the soldiers on the bridge. Yeah. yeah. On the bridge. Where are they on a pier? Some such. So, all right. Next week. Uh, we have talked at length about revisiting, uh, past games, uh, but treating it from the perspective of when we did it previously, it was best, uh, when we're going to revisit some of them at certain times, it's favorite. Uh, and so next week, uh, in, although I fear that Jake just revealed his answer, we're going to do hashtag Spielberg blend. Um, and we're going to play from a perspective of we're naming our favorites. And so when you play along at home and Jake may throw us a curveball, maybe it's not Jurassic Park. I don't know. It's very possibly could be. Just because it has my favorite shot doesn't mean, you know, he's done a lot of movies that I love. He's done a few amazing movies. So hashtag Spielberg blend. It's our first time revisiting from an earlier blend game. You should still play along on social uh, using hashtag Spielberg blend. I think enough time has passed that choices won't show up on Twitter or we'll have new people who are playing along. Of course, you can also, if you don't want to go to the Twitter feed, you can email us your picks at realblend at cinemablend.com. At what point are we going to do peel blend? That's going to be like, that's going to be like really funny though. Like, I mean, at some point, you know, I know he's got to do two movies. Yeah, but I mean, I, <laughs> I think to. it's funny though if we did peel blend. <laughs> it would like, be really it's funny. So yeah, and I, I think know. if we ever get him as a guest on this show, and believe me, we're trying really hard to get him to come on, we will have to call ourselves Peel Blend that week. <laughs> I will uh, introduce yeah. us as Welcome to Peel Blend. Oh, <laughs> my episode number God one point A. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> uh, all right, listeners, you can follow us on social media, of course, at, at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, and at Sean underscore O'Connell. Head over to the iTunes page, leave us a review. It means the world to us. It's helping us grow this podcast. We're up to 86 star ratings. We have 45 reviews. Email us the reviews. Also, we will read them at the top of the show like we did this week. Real Blend at cinemablend.com. We will be back next week uh, to talk about the new releases and all the new news that's breaking. And of course, play hashtag Spielberg Blend where we talk about our favorites. So tune in to that episode. And until then, Dunkirk.
Dunkirk. Dunkirk? Dunkirk. Dunkirk. <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.